political party candidate nominating petitions. Those, those petitions are signed in May for the August primary. So the oath is, I solemnly swear or affirm, this is the relevant part, I solemnly swear or affirm that I do not intend to vote at the primary for the office for which this nominating petition is made. The government's position is different. It adds four words at the present time. I solemnly swear or affirm that I do not intend at the present time to vote at the primary for the office for which this nominating petition is made. Why is it important that those four words are missing? Well, the word oath is defined as solemn statement or promise. The word intend can be defined as have a course of action as one's purpose. So ordinary people doing the ordinary reading believe they would be promising in May not to vote in the August primary. Now, that, those four words were interpreted to be in the, stat the statute when they're not by the lower court, first Libertarian Party case and in this case. My clients say that because those four words are missing, there's a substantial burden on them. Remember the Virginia Board of Pharmacy, uh, Pharmacy case that the First Amendment protects the communication. So a recipient of a communication can make the same First Amendment arguments that the transmitter can and vice versa. So in the complaint, uh, the paragraphs basically state people won't sign because they think that they are promising in May not to vote in August. Yes, they're promising in May not to vote in the primary in August. If those four words were there, we wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, and so, aren't, aren't you trying to change the word? I mean, I know you're talking about adding four words, but you're in effect changing I do not intend to I will not vote. These are the question is, is, is there a, 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 do people read the oath that way because of the meaning of the word oath and the meaning of the word intend? Right. So you're right that, that, that I, I could do that. The government's doing the opposite. And so when you have two reasonable interpretations of a statute, you could go one way or the other. It, it's not helpful for the court to add words to the statute. Well, I think the court would say, I didn't add words. The word is do not intend, and that's a future intention. And if it meant something different, it would say, I will not vote. Uh, an oath is a statement or a promise. So a person sees oath, oh, this could be a promise. And then with the word intent, is have a course of action as one's purpose. I promise to intend not to vote in the primary. So are you, are you, are you breaching a promise by voting in the primary. I made a promise to intend not to vote in the primary. And so the fact is that people have reported, and it's alleged in the complaint, that that's how they read it. And so what do we do? Who exactly are you representing, though? Are you representing the voters who can't read it properly, or are you representing just the party, or I, both? Uh, well, I'm, I'm representing the party, but under Virginia Board of Pharmacy, I can make the arguments on behalf of the party and on behalf of the voters, because we're talking about one communication, the petition itself. So the Virginia Board of Pharmacy case, they could argue on behalf of themselves and on behalf of consumers. Well, I'm wondering, I'm actually wondering, this might turn into jurisdiction day, but I'm wondering about standing here, because there's the, there's the um, and how your argument interacts with the black letter principle that when third parties potentially misread something, that, you know, because you're t relying on the actions of third parties, then you can't sue uh, in those circumstances because there's an independent cause for the injury. 
Oh, well, that's, that's um, you know, we're, uh, of course, there's, uh, our principal brief is full of arguments that we're not misreading the statute that the lower court has. And so the lower court has added words. Uh, why doesn't the court just uh, But suppose, move? but so I, I, want to, I want to pin you down. Suppose that Judge Grunder is right, that, you're, that it's actually a misreading. Then do you lose on standing? A misreading by the court or a misreading by the voters? No, that, that, that misreading by the voters. Excuse okay, me. it's not possible they're misreading it because it says, I, I solemnly swear or affirm, this is an oath, not to vote, or to, not to vote in the primary. It doesn't say that. It says do not intend. To do not vote. intend to vote. Right, and so they, they're, they're promising an intent not to vote in the primary. Exactly. As I sit here right now, I don't intend to vote in the primary. Well, it doesn't say as I sit right here right now. That's my point, that the words at the present time aren't in there. And so, so, so it's, it's that's, in that's order that's to... That's what uh, intend is. That's what intend means. If it meant anything different, it would say will. So they're wrong. They're just, if, they're, if you have a subset of voters who are reading it that way, they're just wrong. Well, that's... that's uh, 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 it's, it, that's our experience, and they're reading it. Why would Has anybody people... ever been prosecuted for that, for perjury? Not, not that we're aware of. Who subsequently voted. Not that we're aware of. So, I think they'd have a hard time making that case. But, but the burden we're complaining about is that people read this in the plain meaning, ordinary way that people would, maybe not a judge, maybe not the lower court, and then when people read it, they read it as an oath... Do not intend to vote in the primary. An oath can mean a promise. Well, and that's what, actually, on the standing question, I was hoping you would, would go that direction because I think that what the argument may be is that it's just ambiguous enough. Maybe there's a much better reading, but it just might be a little ambiguous that people don't want to hassle with it. They read it and they say, geez, I don't want to get prosecuted. Well, you're not going to get pro- but I don't know. I don't want to take a stand. Like that's kind of, So that might be enough for standing. Um, which may not help you with the merits. Um, but that's why I said assume that Judge Grunder is right about it um, and, and then address the stand. And that might be, is that the way in your view to, to sort of toe the line on these, on these different lines of cases? Well, that would be the interest, right? Um, the interest is in there's, there's confusion here regarding what it means and it's affecting our ability to get the signatures on the petition. So I, I appreciate the question, and I swung and missed. But it, right. here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the point, though. The four, word, the four words are, are, are important if they were there, because that would clear up the confusion. Okay, so even if, even if, if I clear the standing hurdle, I still have that problem. But on a substantial burden, you know, I've described that. Now, it's important, I think, to recognize the importance of the case. Okay, let's say I get overstanding, and we get to the merits. That then there is this idea with the, the, the ballot clutter and the party rating that if we, for the moment, say those four words are missing, you know, how does that relate to the government's stated purpose? Like adding the four words to clear up the confusion? Is that so remote from the, ball, the ballot access idea that the, the Anderson verdict standard wouldn't apply, but it'd simply be strict scrutiny? So you can imagine the government comes in every time that there's an issue regarding ballot access, and the government will always say, oh, it's Anderson verdict standard. But if their purpose is so remote from the issue, then I think it should be strict scrutiny. So, so here they say, oh, we can't amend the statute. We don't have to amend the statute to add the four words because uh, it's a lower standard. 
And this puts a lot of heat on the political party to come up with a substantial burden and these other things, whereas the strict scrutiny test, you know, obviously this is not narrowly tailored. Is that the question, though? And, and this is what I'm wondering about, and it kind of takes me back to the other standing point, but it's, it's separate. This is merits, um, which is do we look at what the burden of adding the four words would be, or do we look at the burden that exists from the existing language in the in the statute so do we say does this the you know does this the absence of these four words does that create a substantial burden not is it a substantial burden to change the statute all right no that's right the and the um so for example you know it's black letter law republican party Minnesota be white or whatever if, if there's a if if there's a, a better way to do it if there if there's a, a narrow construction that accomplishes the government stated objective then it's unconstitutional under strict scrutiny. So for me to identify, hey, they could add these four words, and then the confusion's gone, that meets the strict scrutiny. That's test. only if you're strict scrutiny. It assumes strict scrutiny. So what I'm really arguing is, isn't this Anderson verdict? Because maybe there's a little bit of confusion, maybe just a tad of confusion gets you over the standing hurdle, but there's not enough to say that this is a substantial burden on the party or the voters reading it. Right, but I'm saying it's under Anderson Burdick. I can argue to you yeah. that that the that their stated government purpose is is too remote from ballot access because it's a numbers game, and having these words in the statute or not isn't part of the numbers game. They have never argued in this case that 500 signatures had to be from people who intended not to vote in the primary. But I think you're missing Judge Strauss's point in his question. The question is. Is the burden adding the four words, is that what we're supposed to look at, which is, seems to be a pretty light burden and may well be a better way of doing it, versus what's the burden of the words as they currently are? Oh, but I addressed that. I thought I addressed that earlier. Okay, well, that I, in the, in the complaint, In the complaint, the people won't sign because they think they're promising the oath in May not to vote in August. Okay. So I'll save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Very well. Thank you, Mr. Cardo. Mr. Barr? May it please the court. My name is Alan Cook Barr. I represent Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon in this matter. The court should affirm here because Minnesota's nominating petition oath does not burden appellants. Thus, this court does not even need to reach the Anderson verdict balancing test with respect to that oath. Even if the oath does impose a slight burden, it still passes that Anderson verdict test for election regulations because it furthers important election interests and is not unreasonably burdensome and is non-discriminatory. I'd like to begin with the meaning of the oath. As opposing counsel pointed out and the court pointed out, the text of the oath requires that you do not intend to vote in the primary election for the candidate for which you're signing a nominating petition. This court has already interpreted what that oath means. In Libertarian Party, the court held that voters are free to change their minds. In the same way that I might colloquially check the weather, see that it's raining, I do not intend to mow the lawn this weekend. But if it turns out to be a nice, sunny day, I could change my mind, I could go out, I could mow the lawn. No one would say I was lying when I 
previously said, I did not intend to mow the lawn when the forecast said it was raining. Now, I agree with you. That's the better reading. I mean, we said it in Libertarian Party, but what if there's just enough, there's just enough ambiguity there without those four words for a voter to say, God, do I really want to take a chance with five years and this huge fine? Is it really worth it for me? In which case, there's some percentage of people, which is I think what they're saying, that just say, I don't want the hassle. Sure. In that situation, what I think appellants are really attempting to do is to, rather than resolving that ambiguity in court, say that if there's ambiguity, we don't have to resolve that. And that's not how cases work. For example, if those voters who actually did not understand the oath said, we want to challenge this law, and they came into court and said, let's let's say this, this law keeps us from voting the primary. The court wouldn't then say, well, maybe it is, maybe it is ambiguous. We're not going to figure that out. We're just going to say that uh, you can proceed with your lawsuit. The court would engage and decide what does the statute actually mean. Appellants are trying to skip that step by saying because we're the party and other folks are having this confusion, we should be able to rely on that confusion without the court taking on its role of saying what the law is. Do you think Minnesota could require an oath that says, I will not vote? Yes, it could. Um, Under American Party of Texas v. White, the U.S. Supreme Court has held voters do not have the right to vote in both a, through a nominating petition process and in a primary election. So how does that affect this case? Does it, um, does it affect this case? In other words, um, or does it affect the Anderson verdict analysis at all to say, look, you could change the oath and make it more burdensome. So these voters that have this concern, whether rational or justified or not, look, we could write it the other way. We, it's, it's perfectly constitutional for us to prevent you from doing it. Yes, Your Honor. I, I think if the court reaches the merits on the issue of, of balancing burden versus state interest, the fact that the Supreme Court has upheld a higher burden, saying if you if you sign a nominating petition, you don't get a vote in a primary at all, you can't change your mind, if that higher burden is allowed, then certainly the lesser burden of being able to sign a nominating petition and then later change your mind is also going to satisfy that balancing test. I do also want to address with respect to, so the the meaning of the oath, this court has already addressed. Um, Under that meaning, the burdens that that appellants are alleging are not fairly traceable to the oath. They allege two burdens on appeal. First, that voters don't want to sign because they are giving up voting in the primary. That isn't what the oath does. As, as we've discussed already, you can change your mind if you want to. <coughs> Second, they allege a burden that voters are fearful of prosecutions regardless of whether or not the oath actually keeps them from voting in primaries. They're, they're scared that they might be prosecuted. Those fears are unreasonable so as to be not be a source of standing because there have never been any such bad faith prosecutions the oath, actual oath, would not call for prosecutions if you change your mind unless there was evidence of changing it and pro- or evidence that you had not intended to vote for the case, had intended to vote for in the primary at the time you signed the nominating petition. And finally, 
appellants do not make any allegation of how this is different than any other fears of prosecution under any other statute that has an intent requirement. What about the argument they make that um, the reading of intent, just meaning the present intent, is sort of contrary to the ultimate purpose of the oath? That seems to make a little sense to me. What do you make of that? So with respect to, I guess, are you, are you asking with respect to to interpreting the oath for um, Anderson Burdick balancing or with respect to establishing standing causation in the first place, Your Honor? Well, no. I, I mean, I think the purpose is that you don't want to clutter the ballot with people who are going to then vote in the primary, right? And so you have this oath but if the oath is limited just to just a present intent to which you can then change your mind, they seem to be contrary purposes. I think that... Or at least the, the interpretation of present intent doesn't further the stated purpose. Respectfully, I, I disagree, Your Honor. So the, the state identifies two interests that are furthered by the oath requirement. First... Uh, the running of spoiler candidates, which I think is the, the more obvious one that is furthered by the other. So I'll address that first. If you are, if a group of, of major party voters wants to get a spoiler candidate on the ballot, they're trying to pull away votes from another major party candidate, they will have, at the time they're going out and getting nominating petition signatures, they will have an intent presumably, to actually vote for their major party candidate come primary election time. So they won't be able to sign the nominating petition because they be, they'd be lying. They'd be saying we, we aren't going to vote in the pr- major party primary when, in fact, they are for their candidate. They just want this other spoiler candidate on the ballot. So that interest is furthered. Similarly, with respect to reducing ballot clutter by showing you've got at least a preliminary interest in a candidate. Unless voters are en masse signing nominating petitions where they don't actually support the candidate, which, which is a possibility, I, I will concede, there, some voters are going to do that. Unless that is happening en masse, though, you are still going to reduce the number of candidates that don't have an actual showing of support. And that furthers the state's interest of reducing ballot clutter. It furthers the state's interest of avoiding spoiler candidates. And because strict scrutiny doesn't apply, we're only in in Anderson-Burke balancing land, that is going to satisfy the state's important electoral interests. Let me, let me ask if, and this may be entirely beside the point, if strict, strict scrutiny does apply, do you still win? Your Honor, we, we have not briefed up that issue. Um, I, I would, off, off the cuff, I, I, I would say that um, the state's interests are certainly legitimate in this that case. And, case. And you cited beforehand, I think, predated the Anderson case, didn't it? Um, yes, it, yes, because Anderson was in, I believe, the late 80s, whereas, whereas Texas was in either the, the 60s or but 70s. your argument, I think, was that the Texas case still controls a ban on voting in the primary. Yes, I, I think that certainly... It may be irrelevant, I don't know. Yeah, but, uh, I, I certainly I think at least American Party uh, of Texas versus White is, is a strong suggestion that pre-Anderson verdict, even under those tests, 
a lesser regulation like this would also pass constitutional muster. Briefly addressing, um, if the court does reach the Anderson verdict testing, I've already sort of discussed the, the state's interest. Um, with respect to weighing appellant's burden against those interests, appellants do not allege a severe burden. In fact, notwithstanding the oath requirement being present, they have succeeded seven out of the last ten times in getting a candidate on the ballot, even having to have people sign the oath, with the oath requirement. That history of success, again under Anderson, or American Party of Texas v. White, that history of success indicates a burden is not severe. But I'm not sure that's true, because if without the oath, they would have gotten 10 out of 10, and I don't know if there's anything in there. It seems to me that that could still be a significant burden. It, they might have gotten 10 out of 10. The appellants do not allege that but for the oath, they would have been successful. And I, I don't think they could because there are myriad reasons why someone might choose to sign, sign or not sign a nominating petition. Maybe someone actually does intend to vote a primary so they could not truthfully do so. Maybe a candidate just doesn't have interest to get voters to vote for them. There are many other reasons besides just the oath requirement that lead to nominating petition candidates not being successful. In addition to not creating a significant burden on appellants, the oath requirement is also non-discriminatory. Under Lubin v. Panesh, United States Supreme Court case, minor party candidates and major party candidates are not similarly situated such that they have to be treated the same. Major party candidates have a history of success such that they can be placed on the ballot directly. But to further the state's interests, that case recognizes states may put additional requirements on minor party candidates to further those state interests in ballot clutter reduction and in avoiding spoiler candidates. Finally, even if they were similarly situated, minor party candidates' oath has an analogy in major party candidate primaries. When you vote in a major party primary in Minnesota, you are required to take an oath that you have not and, and are prohibited from voting in another major party primary. So there are oath requirements similar for both major and minor party candidates. The court should affirm because the burdens imposed are not attributable to the oath, they're attributable to third party views, and in any event, the oath satisfies the Anderson verdict standard. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Barr. Uh, I thought the, uh, the hypothetical was an interesting one, uh, the oath to intend uh, to mow the lawn, if you recall that. So that's not what the statute says. It doesn't say, I intend to vote in the primary. It says, I intend, do not intend to vote in the primary. So the hypothetical would have to be, I take an oath to not, to not, I do not, I do not intend to mow the lawn. And then you leave the reader, well, what happens if you not not mow the lawn? You mow the lawn. I mean, this sort of, the grammar structure, the, the relationship of the words and the people's understanding of the words matters. And so it says, I, intend, I do not intend to vote in the primary. And that, then the person's considering, well, what if I, I vote in the primary? I, I change my intention. And I understand that, that the people need to understand the law, but judicial glosses on the law are a whole other thing. I mean, it's hard enough just to read the laws. 
it's hard enough for the law enforcement to read the laws. And just expect the people to know that if they uh, later have not the intention to, to vote, whether that affects them with respect to their signature on the petition uh, matters. So what, why is that a burden on the minor political parties? Because they've experienced it. So it goes to the standing issue. This Anderson verdict thing really concerns me in the sense that our minor political parties and their supporters are becoming second-class citizens for First Amendment rights. I mean, it seems like minor political parties should be at the core of the process. Here, the government and the court basically conceded if the words were there, it would be clearer. It would, it would alleviate the burden under strict scrutiny. It's unconstitutional. Well, let me ask you this. Um, sort of finish this for me, which is the remedy I want, assuming we agree with you, what is the remedy you want? In the case, well, it would be an opinion saying that uh, a declaratory judgment saying that this uh, statute, this oath language, is not narrowly tailored to meet a compelling state interest in the strict scrutiny test. So, you want us to issue a declaratory judgment, um, and would that mean then that it would bind the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State would have to remove the oath, or do you want the four words that you've that you've identified added? Yeah, the courts—that's uh, the mistake of the lower court already adding words. The courts can't add words. Uh, that's, we know that from severability doctrine. The court can kind of take out words but can't add. So, yeah, the whole thing would have to be struck. Okay. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how we, we came to this place in the sense of, okay, ballot access, we want to treat, you know, the minor political parties different than the, than the major political parties. But then we have something here that, you know, everyone kind of acknowledges uh, is an unnecessary impediment to the minor political parties getting their candidates in the general election ballot. If that clarifying language was there, if it were narrowly tailored to meet the compelling state interest expressed, then there wouldn't be any confusion, there wouldn't be any burden. So I, I think that's kind of the where, where we've come, and that is the first libertarian party, there was this judicial gloss put on the statute. Uh, that is that it means at the present moment, oh, well, that's fine, now we're working with that uh, meaning but that meaning isn't reflected in the oath. And when the oath is read, it's confusing, it's ambiguous, and people don't sign. And that's in the complaint. Now, with respect to how do we proceed, uh, you know, I think obviously a lot of these issues, we need to go back to district court, we need to work hard on the discovery and present the, uh, these claims in a good way. Right, right now, we got the case was truncated we should have been able allowed to flush these things out. And I, I think the, the lower court, you know, kind of went after two things. One, the Iqbal Twombly, are you specific enough? And I, I think the allegation is specific enough. Then with respect to the legal theories, plaintiff's lawyers need more time than, than a 12B6 to develop complicated legal theories. I mean, if, if the court jumps on what's in the complaint regarding legal theories, I mean, everyone agrees, I think, that the level of specificity regarding legal theories is, is really left to later. You, you, put, you put in your claims, your counts, but when you get really specific about the legal theory and the application of the facts to law, that comes later uh, at later motion stages like summary judgment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cardall. Thank you, both counsel, for your appearance and argument. Case is um, submitted and we'll issue an opinion in due course.